0: The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the Psalms, Psalm 43, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 5, which is the entire psalm this evening. The word of the Lord. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, my God. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. We'll be reading through verse 25 this evening Please turn with me once again back to Psalm 43, beginning at verse 1, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Do you ever have one of those days where your stomach is just tied in knots? When one single problem looms so large in your life, that it begins to consume all of your thinking. And then at night you toss and turn on your bed and you just can't get a good night's sleep. I was like that this past Wednesday night into Thursday morning. In fact, I got up at 4.30 on Thursday morning because I got tired of staring at the ceiling and I went downstairs to my basement and I got to work. Uh, That was a lot better than just being left with my thoughts. Now, in the big scheme of things, it was a rather small problem. In fact, even though it was the middle of this last week, it is already in my past. But I share it with you because I stand before you week after week in the pulpit proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And you might develop the wrong conclusion that somehow your pastor just glides through life in a never-ending state of perfect serenity. But the truth is... We're all in this together. From time to time in our lives, we are going to be racked with emotional turmoil. And I think we should find it encouraging that when the Holy Spirit inspired the Psalms in order to guide us in our singing and in our prayers, he did not omit the grind of inner turmoil. Chuck Swindoll puts it like this, Having disturbing feelings on occasion is quite normal. We do a real disservice to a new Christian by telling him or her that it is abnormal or sinful to be disturbed at any time. How unrealistic and how unbiblical. David wrote many psalms while he was churning within. Of course, it is not normal or healthy for a Christian to linger for months in the pit of depression. We need to get outside help if we're going to get through a season like that. But all of us should be transparent enough to admit that we have days like that. And I am comforted that even Jesus himself on occasion was inwardly troubled. This leads to two very basic truths about your life. It is your Father's good pleasure that from time to time in your life you will be placed under a great deal of external pressure. And that makes good sense because the Lord is not content to leave you as a lump of coal when he can use the pressure of circumstances and adversity to mold you into a spiritual diamond. And second, it is your Father's good pleasure that you would ultimately overcome the challenges that he is placing into your life. It is very important that we hold these two truths together. Uh, The so-called health and wealth gospel not only rips them apart, but it totally distorts what the Bible reveals is God's plan for your life. Now, it's not surprising that people are attracted to the lie that you can have victory, never-ending victory, without suffering but it is dreadfully devastating in the lives of God's people because it turns out that that is not the way that you're actually going to experience this life I think the crass forms of the health and wealth gospel aren't really a problem for anyone here but we all do need to guard against the temptation of imagining that our pain and our failures somehow indicate that we are out of the will of God in our lives, that we must be doing something wrong, or even worse, that Almighty God has somehow taken his hands off the steering wheel of your life and perhaps the universe because things are not going as we planned. Nevertheless, the bigger risk for those here tonight is the opposite lie, that God's plan for your life is suffering without victory. I want you to remember that God's plan for your life is both suffering and victory over your circumstances. And a key part of that plan is that we would learn to hope with a biblical hope in the midst of our tribulations. We are going to look at this evening's psalm under four headings. First, our help is in the name of the Lord. Second, Weeping indoors for the night. Third, joy comes in the morning. And fourth, biblical hope leads to praise. Those are actually pretty straightforward, but I want to give them to you one more time. First, our help is in the name of the Lord. Second, weeping indoors for the night. Third, joy comes in the morning. And fourth, biblical hope leads to praise. Before we dive into those four points and the body of the psalm, uh, there is something about the composition of this psalm uh, that I believe is worth bringing to your attention. Most scholars believe that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 were actually originally one psalm, and that they were later divided for liturgical purposes. Um, If you simply read Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 together— you can understand why people would come to that conclusion. They repeat a lot of the same language, and they continue the same very important theme about hoping in God in the midst of this life's trials. Furthermore, Psalm 43 doesn't have its own introduction. You know, there's a superscript over many psalms, and there isn't one over Psalm 43. Some people suggest that's because they originally belonged together. Uh, I don't have any particular problems with this mainstream view and it's not one that was concocted just you know 100 years ago by some critical scholar this idea goes all the way back to the jewish mishnah that these two psalms were originally one Uh, nevertheless i think there's a perfectly good alternative explanation for this we should remember that the hebrew text the masoretic text came to us with them being divided as two psalms furthermore uh the greek septuagint which is a translation that goes back at least 2,000 years, also comes to us as two separate psalms. And so I think an alternative explanation works equally well, which is that the psalmist has Psalm 42 either before him or in his mind, and as he meditates upon that in his own suffering, he develops it further, using the same language and the same sorts of themes in order to extend the idea into another original creation. Well, it doesn't matter a great deal which one of those we take because either one of those options is going to leave us with this reality. The two Psalms are going to cast light upon one another. That is, as we read the two Psalms together, it's going to help us understand Psalm 43 to realize what the Psalmist was wrestling with in Psalm 42. Psalm 42 makes clear that the Psalmist was a prominent leader in Jerusalem, perhaps the king, but that's not necessarily the case, but a prominent leader, maybe the king, who has been driven away from the Lord's temple. And this fits fits very nicely with everything that we find in tonight's passage. Psalm 43 begins with the glorious truth that our help is in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 1 with me. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. The first major request of the psalm, there are actually only two big requests, the first major request of the psalm is that God would vindicate us. Now, vindication comes in two varieties in the Bible. Uh, One of the ways that God vindicates us is simply judicially in his courtroom. Uh, That is, he declares you to be in the right. This is the way you get justified. The Lord looks upon you in Jesus Christ, Christ having put away your sin and reckoned his own perfect record of righteousness to your account, and God vindicates you by declaring that you are in the right. That is not what the psalmist is talking about here. What the psalmist is talking about here in Psalm 43 is that he has actual physical enemies. And he wants God to vindicate vindicate him as the psalmist by taking the psalmist's side, fighting for the psalmist and overcoming his enemies. That's what he's asking for. Now oddly, at least it's odd to me, Some 20th and now 21st century Western Christians, including a number of friends of mine who are pastors, have argued that we ought not to sing all 150 psalms and that calling for God to intervene and judge our enemies is somehow sub-Christian. They take the idea that we ought to love our enemies, an idea, by the way, which is also in the Old Testament, and they take that idea and they swallow up everything else that God says. I want to point out that this modern view is contrary to the wisdom of church history, as well as the confessions of the Reformed churches, and it manages to simultaneously misunderstand both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Nevertheless, it might appear to have a certain plausibility, so let me suggest four reasons why you should confidently call upon the Lord to act to vindicate His own glory and his own people by bringing judgment on his enemies and all the enemies of his church. First and foremost, please do not imagine that somehow the God of the Old Testament revealed himself as a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament reveals himself as a God of love. Uh, I'm just shocked that that idea keeps circulating, not just in the world. But in the church, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God very clearly reveals himself as a God that is gracious and compassionate in the Old Testament. In fact, the commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors as yourself, are prominent in the Old Testament. They are not a new invention when Jesus comes into the manger. Indeed, the immediate application of the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves, found in Leviticus, is to love the vulnerable foreigners who are sojourning in our midst. i want to pause on that idea for a moment and realize how easy it would have been for Jewish people to look at these pagans who are coming into their land and to say, yeah, they don't matter. What matters is God's people. And God says, I want you to take this commandment to love your neighbor And apply it to them. That's the Old Testament. Second, the Lord gave us these psalms precisely so that we would pray and sing them. Um, This is a simple truth, but please take it to heart. Please don't imagine that you are somehow more ethically elevated or ethically sensitive than the Holy Spirit is. God gave you his word precisely so that you would pray and sing it back to him third what the psalmist is praying for is that the lord would put his own circumstances to right. Um, he's actually dealing with enemies here but of course it isn't always personal enemies it can be much more abstract to that just very uh oppositional circumstances or in fact it can be real physical human enemies And he's praying that the Lord would put things to right and to enact justice in his life. But do you know, that's the very same thing we pray every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you are praying that God would put this present age to right. Part of God putting this present age to right is judging all of his and all of our enemies. Fourth, Just as the Old Testament reveals the Lord as the God of love and compassion, the New Testament reveals the Lord as the perfectly holy God who brings judgment on his and our enemies. Petitions for the vindication of the saints are sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. They they are not just a rare occurrence. Let me just give you a, a handful of them so that you see where I'm going with this. Paul tells the Corinthians, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And if that doesn't grab your attention, what about these words which Paul also wrote, this time to the church in Galatia? Paul writes, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision... Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Um, Let me say that's more graphic language than we would typically use in the church, but it's found right there in the Word of God. Just one more example Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These are saints whose souls have already been made perfect. There is no possibility that their prayer is anything other than perfectly in the will of God. And they are praying that God would avenge them and avenge their blood by bringing judgment on those who persecuted them. See, the thing to remember is that the Lord never says vengeance is bad. What the Lord says is vengeance is mine. And it is precisely by going to the Lord and asking the Lord to bring judgment that you are placing vengeance in the hands of the one to whom it belongs. You are not taking vengeance into your own hands. Rather, you are entrusting it to God. By the way, the Lord does not simply say, vengeance is mine. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay That's true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament, and therefore you are quite right to pray all the Psalms in your own life. I do want to add that we need to be both wise and realistic about asking the Lord to act in this way. Uh, After all, the person who is by far, far and away, caused the most problems and suffering in my life is me. And so if I go around thinking that every problem I have, I ought to be praying that God's bringing judgment on somebody, uh, I've missed the point. This ought to not be the main diet of your prayer life. The Bible's quite realistic because God is realistic. He knows there will be times in your life where individuals or institutions, in fact, are going to be pit against you as enemies of the gospel. And he gives us words to give expression of that, in order to turn our concerns and our future over to our Father who loves us. I'd be happy to talk with any of you further about this if you're still struggling with this. For now, I simply want to encourage you to take the Lord at his word. We often don't know how to pray as we ought, but when we offer God's words back to him, we can know that we are praying in accordance with his perfect will. The key thing to see in verse 1 is actually not really the desire for vindication. Uh, That's the occasion. The key thing in verse 1 that we ought to see is where the psalmist places his hope that he will be vindicated. That's the key point. In the words of Psalm 128, our help comes in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Now, it might be obvious that we ought to be focusing our hope for deliverance on the Lord himself, uh, but regrettably, personal experience, and I will add observation, I'm not the only one who does this, shows that we tend to seek vindication first at our own hands. Our, Our most natural inclination when we are being pushed or oppressed is for us to say, I can take care of this. I'm going to straighten things out. Now, I want you to realize that there's a tremendous danger in doing that. The path for self-vindication runs right next to the path of taking vengeance into our own hands. Those paths touch each other. It is so easy if you're going to seek your own vindication to stray a little bit off the path into overt sin. God says, no, not you. Turn it over to me. Offer your concerns up to me in prayer, because I never err into sin. Furthermore, it might turn out that your adversaries are too strong for you. Sure, you're trying to vindicate yourself, but if you try to vindicate yourself, you may fail. In fact, you may even make your situation worse you may end up getting crushed by the words and the actions of those who are against you. So I want you to consider the godly example of Jonathan Edwards, uh, who is sometimes known as America's theologian, just such a remarkably brilliant Christian pastor. Jonathan Edwards was driven out of the church. He was pastoring in Northampton, Massachusetts. And the reason for this is, is that Edwards had inherited a regrettable problem from his father-in-law, Solomon Stoddard. Solomon Stoddard is one of the most famous ministers in New England at the time. Uh, He was very, very prominent. And Stoddard was one of the men who helped develop this idea of a halfway covenant. And it worked like this. What had happened was, is there were so few people in the churches that were actually willing to come forward to the elders and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. And perhaps the elders had made it too big of a hurdle. So they had all these baptized people coming to church every week who had never made a public profession of faith. What do you do with their children? See, biblically, the children of one or more believing parents is to be baptized. But if you're going to carry that out when you had this very rigorous notion that, that people can't just come and profess that they're believers... You end up with all these churchgoers whose children cannot be baptized. So Stoddard, with some other men, came up with this idea of a halfway covenant, which said as long as the parents themselves were baptized, and they were not living scandalous lives, we would baptize their children as well. It's sort of moving on to the grandchildren generation. Well, Edwards, as he's teaching and he's reading the Bible, he realizes there is no biblical support for this idea. And so he starts teaching his congregation. He starts moving the congregation back to a biblical practice that you are supposed to make a public profession of faith and that it's not a horrible ordeal to confess that God has shown you mercy. Well, you know, people don't like that sort of change particularly if it means you're not willing to baptize the children of prominent people in the church who happen to not be communicant members. And so when that came about, it's kind of hard just to drive Edwards out of the church when he's this brilliant theologian, and um, you know they didn't really have good arguments for what he was presenting. So stories started to circulate. Gossip took up. People voiced their frustrations about Edwards in all manner of ways, some of which were probably true, he was a sinner, and some of which were quite clearly untrue. And eventually they voted to dismiss him as their pastor. One of Edwards' good friends at the time was frustrated that Edwards would not take a more active role in seeking to defend himself. And at one point this friend said to him, Jonathan, don't you want to be vindicated? And Edwards replied, I desperately want to be vindicated, but if I were to vindicate myself, the extent of my vindication would depend on my own powers. I have entrusted myself to the living God, and he will vindicate me completely. Now, it's unlikely that your conflicts are going to become that dramatic or your lives are going to be recorded in biographies, although perhaps for some of you they will. Nevertheless, we all have to deal with this struggle. We have to deal with the reality that we have adversaries in this world, or at the very least, we have circumstances that are against us in this world. We have to ask ourselves, where are we going to look for hope? And We need to look in this very same place that Edwards did. Our help comes in the name of the Lord, who made the heavens and the earth. The Psalms not only make clear that we will face adversity in this life, they also make clear that there is a distinct challenge for Christians when we feel like we're being crushed by that adversity. The challenge is simply this. The God we trust spoke the universe into existence. He does not lack the power to deliver me from my circumstances. So why is he leaving me in them? Look at verse 2 with me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Now, in one sense, this is a complaint against God but it is a complaint offered in faith. The psalmist is plainly saying to the Lord, you are the God in whom I take refuge. That's good. But that leaves him as it leaves us with the very real problem that when we flee to the Lord for refuge and our circumstances don't change, we have to struggle, or at least we often do struggle, with what exactly is going on. God has all power. Surely he could deliver me. And it's not as though the Lord is too busy with other things. So he's incapable of relieving my suffering. So as the psalmist puts it, why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemy. Now part of the answer must be that weeping indoors for the night. Uh, That's part of God's perfect plan for your life. There are at least two good reasons why this must be so. Uh, I've already mentioned that the Lord is using the pressures and hardships of this life to sanctify you and to turn your life into something beautiful for God that is so much better than a life of endless ease and comfort. St. Augustine insightfully gives us a second reason For the suffering of God's people in common with the world. If everyone who became a Christian enjoyed health and wealth, non Christians would imagine that the main reason we are following Jesus is for material blessings rather than for God Himself. And if we flip this around, it also means that when non Christians witness us being joyful in the face of hardships, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we are powerfully proclaiming to them that the Lord is enough. So, yes, weeping indoors for the night, that is part of God's perfect plan for his children, but thankfully that is not the end of the story. Weeping indoors for the night, but joy comes in the morning. What's particularly interesting to me is that even by the end of the psalm, the circumstances haven't changed at all. You should mark that in your thinking. Even by the end of this psalm, the circumstances haven't changed at all. Yet the tone of the psalm is shifting away from complaint towards joy and hope. I want to give you a saying. I hope that many of you will fix this saying in your memory because it's it's been useful to me. This isn't my saying. This is one you've heard before, but I want to repeat it. It has been said that worry is paying interest on debts that might not come due. Right? You have a problem. You have something that's going to cost you something in the future, whether it's a problem or whatever it happens to be, and you're worrying about it now isn't solving it, but it's robbing you of joy in the present. Worry is paying interest on debt that might not come due. But I want you to think about the other side of this. Hope is bringing blessings that you will experience in the future into the present. Let me say that again, and we'll add the word biblical here. It's important you have biblical hope. Biblical hope is bringing joys that you will experience in the future. Blessings that you will experience in the future into the present. Well, how does that work? At a merely human level, we all know what this is like. Um, suppose some of you, um, try not to covet here, try not to covet here, uh, but suppose some of you um, schedule a vacation to Cabo San Lucas in March of this coming year. Right? Beautiful, going to Mexico, warm, nice resort. When do you start enjoying it? Well, I'm going to tell you that when it's, you know, February 1st and we have eight, nine inches of snow and it's dark out, you're going to be looking at that picture going, Cabo San Lucas is five, six weeks away. You're going to start enjoying it in the past. Part of actually going on vacations like that is you have all this anticipation of it where you get joy even before you have the experience Love that's true with your relationship with God as well. The things that God has promised you about the future, even about the new heavens and the new earth, as you look forward to them in hope, knowing that God who has promised is faithful, he will surely do it, you can realize that one day God is going to wipe away every tear from your eye. That one day God is going to sanctify you completely and transform you. That one day you will see him face to face. You can bring that joy, in part, not perfectly, the nature of our life in a fallen world, but in part, you can bring those joys right back into the present. That principle does not just work for vacations. It's also valid when applied to what the Lord is going to do for us in our future. Hoping in the Lord for these blessings will make our lives better right now in the present. I should add, it will also st- uh, stiffen your backbone for faithfulness, knowing that the current sufferings are passing away and the dawn of God's righteousness is absolutely certain. And such hope also reshapes the orientation of our prayers. So the psalmist praised in verse 3, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Now the psalmist is pleading with the Lord to give him understanding and wisdom, the understanding and wisdom that he needs in the midst of his trials. Um, Scholars commonly take the the word here, truth, to refer to the word of God and light to God-given wisdom, the Holy Spirit opening our hearts and minds to understanding the word. And I can understand why so many people would be bent in that way because it's a common usage in the Bible. I'm not sure we can be that specific. Part of the problem with reading it that way, although I think it works for us as a general rule in life, is that the psalmist seems to have something very explicit in mind. Not simply inner enlightenment, but that he will be led physically back to Jerusalem to worship there at the house of the Lord and to worship at the altar of God. So one very fine Old Testament scholar, William Van Gemmeren, in his commentary on the Psalms, suggests that actually this image can be seen as an analogy to the pillar of fire in the wilderness that guided Israel out of Egypt to the Promised Land. He is saying, Lord, in your faithfulness, in your work of redemption, would you guide me, lead me, and bring me home to your temple? Taken together, Psalm 42 and 43 tell us a remarkable thing about the purpose of a psalmist. I, I don't think too many of you were with us when we were looking at Psalm 42 together, but you can go back and reread it, and this will be obvious. The purpose of the psalmist now in Psalm 43 becomes clear. Gerald Wilson puts it like this. At the beginning of Psalm 42, the psalmist, like a deer panting for water, longs to come into God's presence and remembers those passionate moments of temple worship when it is possible to come before God in festal joy. Now in Psalm 43, we learn that his goal has never changed. He seeks divine light and truth to provide guidance for a return to God's holy hill and dwelling to the temple with its altar. Now that's the chief thing that the psalmist is longing for, a restoration to intimacy with God, to joyfully worshiping the Lord along with the rest of God's people. Here's the problem. Regrettably, there are a lot of people who would have been happy to stay in Egypt if God would simply have taken care of Pharaoh. And you know, we know that's true, because when God led Cyrus to send his people out of the Babylonian exile, only a tiny remnant of people returned to the promised land, returned to Zion, where God has set his name. And the reason is, is Babylon had become rather comfortable. It was far wealthier than the land of Canaan was, it was the capital of the known world. And Cyrus was an enlightened leader who granted all sorts of freedoms. He was happy to have the Jewish people stay there. And so out of the whole nation, originally only 50,000 Jews returned. Well, we might care a little bit about Jews from 2,500 years ago, but what we really care about is ourselves. So I want to tell you to ask yourself a very challenging question. Think about heaven for a moment and what it's like. Would you be happy to be there if Jesus wasn't there but as you had all the trappings of heaven your your tears were wiped away from your eyes there is no more pain, no more suffering everybody you meet is always right and nice and kind but Jesus isn't there I'm concerned that there are people in the church that wouldn't seem to bother having that experience at all but beloved if that's you You don't yet know Jesus as you ought because the only thing that is sufficient to satisfy your deepest longings for all eternity is God himself. That's why St. Augustine so famously prayed to the Lord at the beginning of his confessions, O Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Now here's some good news as we tie this back together. You do not have to wait until the new heavens and the new earth to begin enjoying some of its blessings. For biblical hope brings the blessings of the future into the present. Uh, let me add that biblical hope frequently flows out of biblical prayer. Right? Those things go together. Uh, rabbi Segal, he's not a Christian, he's a Jewish rabbi. I think he makes a very insightful observation about this psalm. The psalmist is praying that the Lord would lead him back to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And Sagal writes, yet the very act of prayer seems to bring a resolution of sorts. That is, the whole countenance, the, the, the emotional attitude of the psalmist has changed away from needing to be delivered to now one of burgeoning joy and confident hope Isn't that frequently true in your life? You, you know, you cry out to the Lord for help until you actually get around to praying. You know, you're wrestling, you're fretting. You cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And before he ever answers your prayer, the mere act of bringing your heart open before the Lord God, your Father in heaven, gives you a peace that passes understanding. As we sometimes sing, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Well, the application here is pretty straightforward. Pray. Right? Hope in the Lord and therefore cry out to him. Since the ultimate end of our lives is praise, we should not be surprised that biblical hope would lead to biblical praise. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God of my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Aren't those words already filled with joy? I know I'm being repetitious, but don't you see how biblical hope brings blessings of the future already into our present? And yet even true hope leaves us with the sorrows of this present life until that day when faith will be sight. So the psalmist preaches the closing words of the psalm to his own heart. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. See, this psalm, like many others, actually teaches us to preach the good news to our own hearts. What is the psalmist doing? Back in Psalm 42, he was looking at where he was placing his hope and realizing that he was downcast because he'd been placing his hope in all the wrong things. Now, once again, he is calling himself to refocus his hopes on the living God. It is only when the psalmist focuses his hopes on the Lord that he begins to see a glimmer of true hope returning to his life. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Intriguingly, the psalmist can't even bring himself to say, I am praising God. It still feels like something that belongs to his future. Yet in the very fact of saying this, he praises the Lord as the God of his salvation. This leads to a natural extension to us who, more than 2,500 centuries later, live in the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace. It's a natural extension as we seek to preach to our own hearts. Now that Christ has come, we can meditate on this psalm in light of everything that Jesus has done for us. How do we know that God has not abandoned us? Jesus came and identified with us to bear our burdens and to carry away our sins. Therefore, Jesus is the one who preeminently cries out on the cross, I thirst. Jesus is the one who is most brutally and unjustly surrounded by mockers who deride him saying, where is his God? Jesus is the one who on the cross gave out that great cry of dereliction from the Psalm. Psalm 22, my God, my God, my Why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus didn't just have a sense of a loss of the gracious presence of God in his life. His Father in heaven turned away kindness and poured out upon Jesus his holy wrath against every sin that you and I will ever commit. That is, Jesus was forsaken by God, so you never would be. Let us therefore hope in God, for we shall again praise him, for he is our salvation, and he is our God. Amen.